Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Anything But Typical podcast, and you're in for a treat. Omar George is joining us today, and um, how we met and all that will be un uh, uh, unveiled. It was fun, and it's been even more fun getting to know him and his family and their business. But Omar, as we open this thing up, here's the scenario. You and your wife, Miriam, are going to go to your favorite beach and everybody he is on a quest to find the most beautiful beach in the world and he's been to a lot of them but you're going to eagle beach in aruba but you're having to start at charlotte douglas airport you're walking through the air airport and somebody's talking about you in particular they are talking about you you happen to overhear what they're saying about you what would you want somebody to say about you about me um i would like them to say he's tough but fair i think that that's a pretty good summary of of the the way that i like to uh live my life is i'm going to challenge you but i'm going to be fair about it right i'm, I'm a very big believer in, in justice and fairness and equality and things like that. So, you know, I, I like pushing people until the point where I think that, uh, that, that it's a win-win for both of us. Well, that is pretty accurate with what I've experienced with you too, because uh, <laughs> we were up against some formidable foes <laughs> when, when we were in the shootout for your work, which I'm really glad that we won it, but um, that has been accurate. And, and you've also been a, a joy to get to know too. So Ben, take us through a little bit more of his background. So also, I think that's the first time somebody has said the word tough as far as what they'd want to be described as, which I love, right? It's the self-awareness that you're coming to that question with, Omar, is, is uh, a good way to kick this off. So. Omar is the, the chairman of Aurora Grocery Group and the CEO of Campare Foods Charlotte and plethora of other background that we're going to dive into. And I want to start with your attorney background, Omar. First, what drew you to becoming an attorney? I think what I just mentioned, that desire for justice, for fairness, for equality. Um, I remember, you know, the, the book, obviously, To Kill a Mockingbird when I was in seventh or eighth grade. I think that that Atticus Finch role model of of standing up for what's right, even when you have everybody pushing against you, right? Um, that that was uh, a big motivating factor in me going to law school. My mom says that one of my uncles told her when I was five or six years old, he's going to be a judge one day, right? Because that was kind of always my my demeanor is, is this the right thing? Is this fair? Is this the way that things should be? Yeah. And, uh, and, and when the answer is no, I really like to focus on working hard to, to change that to, to, to what it should be, right? So I think that that was really the motivating factor in me deciding to go to law school is, uh, is, is trying to pursue that study of what is justice, what is fairness, what is equity, um, and, and how is it applied in society and how is it wrongly applied in society? And if it's wrongly applied in society, how do you work within the structure to kind of uh, improve it or correct it? 
So I'm going to bounce around just because it triggered something I want to ask about is what, what about that mindset serves you today in the roles that you, uh, that you, uh, you hold now? Um, I, I think that it really shapes my relationships with everyone I work with. Right. Um, and, and that goes for my employees that goes to business partners, that goes to vendors, um, uh, you know, in our case with landlords, since we're leasing properties to put supermarkets in them. But I, I think that, that that idea of, you know, everyone should get what they deserve, everyone should be treated fairly is, is very important to me. Um, as an example, you know, uh, when we had the pandemic start in 2020, uh, the first thought that I had is, how can we protect our employees, right? I feel that we have an obligation with our community to stay open because supermarkets are an essential part of the community, especially in, in, in the situation that we were in. I've never lived through, well, most of us have never lived through anything like this. Mm -hmm. So how do I continue operating supermarkets so that I can serve the community while protecting my employees and keeping them safe from this unknown disease that I don't know what the impact will be on them, yeah. right? So th those, are, those were two conflicting uh, obligations that I had that I needed to figure out how do I fulfill both of these obligations without hurting one side or the other? Because if I close the stores, I'm hurting all of our customers. But if I just keep it open and don't take any precautions, now I'm putting, you know, 400 employees at risk. Yep. So I think that's one, that's one application of that in, in my current life that, that I was able to, to apply it to. Yeah. No, interesting. That makes sense. So like I said, I'll bounce back and forth. So we'll go back to, to the, the attorney side for a little bit. Um, see if I can have us be a little bit chronological. Um, so what, what type of law did you practice? Uh, mostly real estate, immigration, uh, mergers when i say mergers and acquisitions people think of big mergers and acquisitions i didn't do any big mergers and acquisitions but you know growing up in 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 a business background i understood how what was important when you're buying or selling a business right i was lucky enough to grow up in a family where my father had done that a couple of times and i was able to help him with that where i had uncles who had done it multiple times so to me you know i i helped a lot of people with with the purchase and and, and the sale of their business. I did a lot of immigration work living in New York. If you are an attorney that is fluent in Spanish and you don't do immigration work, you're kind of failing your community, right? Um, so that was a big important part of the work that I did. And I loved real estate. Um, I love commercial leasing. I loved the purchase of, uh, of commercial shopping centers, uh, a lot of commercial real estate work, but that mainly transactional work. Okay. So let's dive a little bit deeper on that, the mergers and acquisitions comment that you said of growing up around that, seeing multiple family members do things like that. What, what do you remember from seeing as, as a kid family members going through either buying or selling different companies? And, and what types of insight did you have at, in that at, at your time when you were young? Um, well, you, you really, when you're growing up in it, you don't understand really what's happening. Right. Um, I, I remember that I would go with my dad to a supermarket that he had in Brooklyn. 
right? And one day we stopped going to that supermarket and we started going to a supermarket on Long Island. Okay. And I said, well, wait a second, what happened to the supermarket in Brooklyn? And uh, he's, oh, well, I sold that one and I bought this one. So now we're going to be working in this store, right? Um, and then soon enough, he sold the one, the first one that he bought on Long Island to buy two in a different part of Long Island, um, him, and, him and his partner, which was uh, my uncle. So, you know, just living that experience with him and what it took, I, you know, I would see him go into a store that was really mismanaged, that was dirty, that, the, you know, had a lot of customer service issues, merchandising issues. And I saw the pride that he would take in kind of rehabilitating that store, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and fixing it up um, and, and then making it successful, right? And, uh, and, and there's, a certain, there's a certain sense of pride in, in that type of work and a big sense of the community aspect of, of our purpose comes from, from my dad. Now, the more entrepreneurial part comes from my mom. Because uh, you know, my mom is always the one that no, no, no. All right, we did that one. Let's sell that one. And let's go buy this one, right? <laughs> so she's much more of the wheeler and dealer that that wants to be uh, buying buying different companies and and doing things like that. But uh, but but growing up around it, you know, I remember in one store, my dad had a very serious lease issue, where the landlord, even though we had you know we my father had a long term lease, the landlord was determined that he was going to get him out. Right. And, you know, and I would hear him talking about it and I was maybe 15, 16 years old. And, uh, and, and I, I learned how leases work from that situation. And he ended up keeping that supermarket. Right. So, so experiences like that really kind of shaped my view on, on, on what business is and how it should be and how it should be managed. I love hearing that your mom was the the firecracker yeah. <laughs> that loved to do the wheel and dealing. That's really cool. Um, I'm I'm curious. So I think it's really cool. Like all three of us have had family members, and both my mother and my my father were also entrepreneurs. My on the side, my mom was a nurse and my dad was an educator, but as an educator, you had to have other side gigs to just keep the lights on. And so um, I just think it's interesting getting those kind of perspectives. So you grew up in New York. What was it that, that took you down to a place that's very different from New York, Charlotte, North Carolina? Um, well, you know, I had an uncle, oh, I have an uncle, that uh, that was running the supermarkets here in Charlotte. And he and my father had discussed the sale of the stores here in Charlotte. And, uh, you know, my, my dad came to me and he said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to buy these stores from your uncle. He wants to move to another part of the country to open up some stores over there. Um, are you interested in going down and operating these stores? Right. And my answer was no. I'm a lawyer with a practice in New York. I'm not moving to Charlotte, North Carolina. I don't even know where Charlotte, North Carolina is on the map, right? I'm not. I'm not moving to Charlotte, North Carolina to run a supermarket. Um, and uh, you know, the more he talked to me about it, and you know, once I once I saw what the opportunity was, and once I came down here and saw how beautiful Charlotte, North Carolina actually is, I I looked at my wife and I said, Hey, look, I think this might be an incredible opportunity for us, right? And uh, we had new we had newborn twins, 
And so our cost of living had increased drastically and our <laughs> income had reduced drastically because she was no longer working because she was taking care of our newborn twins. Um, so the opportunity to come to Charlotte and take over these companies um, in a beautiful location, you know, we had a backyard here. There's no backyard in New York, right? Um, so so that, that opportunity is really what, what motivated us to uh, to make that decision and come down here. And, and we, we, we talk about it all the time. It's probably the best decision we've ever done. So you go from working almost every day in a grocery store from age 13 on, yeah. not being able to do after school activities because you got, you got to go to the grocery store and stock shelves or whatever you need to do that day. And now all of a sudden you're in a position where you're no longer uh, an attorney in New York. You're running grocery stores in a place you've never been before. So describe what those that transition was like for you, because it's a pretty drastic shift. Yeah. So I stopped working day to day in the grocery store when I was 20 years old. Mm -hmm. Right. When I was in the, in the middle of college and I said, you know what, I'm going to focus on college. I had my own little entrepreneur thing that was making me enough money for me to survive um back then while i was still in school and i had decided I'm, I'm going to law school that means i need to get the best grades possible that means i need to study for the lsat and go through this process i'm not going to be able to do all of that if i'm closing a grocery store at 10 o'clock at night every night like i have been in the past and you know i was lucky that my parents were very supportive they understood and uh and they said absolutely we want you to go to law school so if that's what you need to go to if, if you need to leave the supermarkets to go to law school go do that um, and they were fantastic about it. So when, when I came back, it was, to be honest, a little surreal, right? I, I almost felt like, uh, you know, when you go back to your parents' house and you stay in your, in the bedroom where you grew up, you know, that, that's really, that was, the, that was the sense that I had my first day back running a supermarket when I was now 29 years old, right? So, I mean, I, I'd been out, I was 28 years old, so I'd been out for eight years at that point and, and, and coming back and counting cashiers and, you know, and, and looking at vendor invoices and receiving deliveries and going back to that world, it was, it was, uh, it, it was a little, it was a little strange, right? Not going into an office and sitting behind the desk and, and, and helping people with their problems, but instead uh, going back to what I was doing in high school and, and college was uh, that's what it felt like to me. Like I'm going back to mom and dad's house, and going back into into the room where I grew up, and and having all that nostalgia come back, and all the experiences that you had there, you know. Um, but very soon, I realized the difference between an owner and an employee, because before I had been an employee, right? And in 2009, when I came back, even though my father was the owner, my father basically came twice a year to make sure the store was still standing. He really didn't come down that often to, to take an active part in the management of the store. So it really was me running the store. Yeah. Um, and, and I realized the difference, but all the things that he was doing that I had no idea he was doing, right? E even something as basic as payroll. I've never had to do a payroll, right? I was making, I was, I, I've done cashier scheduling, but never done a payroll, Right. So so when I saw what's involved in doing the payroll every week, 
I was like, oh, wow, they do that every week over there? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that stuff, I had no no idea that that was going on until I actually acted like the owner when, uh, in 2009. So th- th- that's kind of, that was a big transition for me. I love the word picture <laughs> of going back to your your boyhood bedroom, you know, like that is such a great word picture that probably everybody listening to this can identify with, um, which is really interesting. And it, that made me kind of take another, like, there are two things that I want to ask you about. One is, so as you were on this trek to become an attorney, but you grew up in a family business where it was like, part of the way of life. It was part of your, the fabric yeah. in the DNA of your family. Did you, as a child, or even when you're going into the law profession, did you have uh, dreams of being part of the family business or having your own business? Because you did, and I do want to hear this little rabbit trail about what were you doing? What were you, what was your entrepreneurial endeavor in college? <laughs> sure. It was legal, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my, my, my business in college was I, I became very interested in designing websites. Right. So mm. when I was uh, mm. when I was 14, 15, I learned HTML. Uh, there was no uh, there was no WordPress like there is today. Right. Or Joomla or, or any of these new content management systems. So I learned old school, basic HTML, CSS, PHP programming, that type of stuff. And I actually created the first website for Compare Foods. Um, because we didn't have one right at that point nobody in my family basically even knew what a website was i was one of the very few people in my family that even knew how to use the internet back then so i i you know i went to my dad and i said hey look i all these big companies are creating these things called websites which is like marketing but for the computer right so i learned how to do some of these can i do one for compare foods and uh, he said, yeah, sure, fine, go ahead, whatever, right? And, and I did. And then corporate picked it up and made that the official website for all the compare foods, right? And I, I say corporate, we talk about the family dynamic. The, the, I say corporate because at that moment, the family was not operating the compare foods name in New York. It was sold to a corporate entity, and they were the ones that were managing uh, the trademark, right? So I had to go to them to get permission in order to do this in the first place. And when they saw it, they said, yeah, we want that for, every, for all of our stores. And I ended up doing for some of their other trademarks that were not Compare Foods. So I ended up creating, was, I was one of the first website creators for supermarkets back in 1999, 2000, 2001. And uh, actually after I did it, I gave it to my brother to take over and he kept it running until just a couple of years ago. So it actually, it actually had long legs uh, as a, as a business. Yeah, that's cool. So I'm going to, that's really fascinating. Like I didn't know that at all. Most yeah, people don't, I don't talk about, I don't talk about it a lot. <laughs> well, that's why we have you on this show. We're trying to yank that stuff out of you. Cause yeah. that's really we, interesting. We go down a lot of rabbit holes, Omar. 
So that's fine. Yeah. That's good. Um, but I want to go back to just the mindset when you were a teenager and beyond. Did you did you think, yeah, you know, my future is going to be with the family business, or that I'm going to go do and build my own thing, which is different than becoming a, an attorney. Yeah. So, you know, I just, I'm just curious, did you have any of those entrepreneurial, like itches? Obviously you, you did it when you, you're, yeah. you find that, Oh, Hey, there's a need and I've got an interest and I'm going to dive into this thing called the, the internet and web design. So, so I, I really did not uh, have, I don't want to say I didn't have interest in coming back into the family business. The way that I saw myself serving the business was, through the legal field, right? Um, and mm -hmm. and one, once again, growing up in the industry, you, you see where the gaps are, where people will sign contracts or enter into transactions that are not to their benefit because they don't have, you know, proper representation or, or they didn't get all of the facts or, you know, there were UCC filings, just to put an example, right? You buy a store and you didn't do a UCC search before you did it, and now, well, why is the government after me for these tax claims? Or why is this company after me because they have a judgment against me? Well, you're supposed to do that as part of due diligence before you buy a business, right? So I saw myself more as instead of being day-to-day -day in the operation of the business as serving the owners as their attorney. And, and, and there was a big gap in that marketplace back in New York because the Dominican community, which is where my, where my family is from, the Dominican Republic, we own as a community a significant amount of supermarkets in New York, right? Um, it, it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's one of our main industries as a community. And, and there really were not any Spanish-speaking attorneys that could, that could really service these business owners in New York the way that they deserve to. So really, that was my goal with my firm was uh, to really and, and really growing up was to, to be a lawyer and help out the business owners uh, make their businesses more successful, but not actually go into the business to operate on a, on a day to day basis. Yeah, so I, I'm just I'm fascinated by that. I love it. Because, you know, there there's this thought that you know entrepreneurs come out of the womb as an entrepreneur like oh that's just the way that they're wired <clears throat> some people are but not everybody you know some people you know see a need or there's a passion that resonates within their heart that they want to do something about and i i love your heartbeat of wanting to serve other business owners that's why we do what we do. That's why Ben does what he does. Um, Cause we've all run businesses and there's a, there's this tender heart part of that, which is it's lonely. It's tough. Yeah. It's, you know, a lot longer hours than a lot of people think. Um, and it, it's fraught with highs and lows, you know? So anyway, that, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. So you were in that spot, right? You were serving uh, as an attorney in New York. You come down here and, and you take over and all of a sudden you start to realize, hey, this is what, this is what running 
everything is like, right? Like, oh, there's yeah. a role that needs to happen. Yeah. Um, that, that was that was a wake up call for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so in and this is arbitrary, but let's say that within that first year, what were a couple of those big hurdles for you? Because the transition from what you're doing in the day to day was pretty big. So what were some yeah, yeah. of those biggest hurdles for you as you were making that transition? I think that uh, setting up systems and processes was a big one. Um, I, I think that one of the differences, I don't want to say with me, but I'm going to say with the newer generation and the older generation is that the older generation is more ad hoc. Is we solve problems as they come up, we'll take care of things as they happen. You know, there's not really that systemization in place to make sure that things are, um, you know, I've been, this is on the top of my mind right now. We've been talking a lot about flywheels, right? So this idea of the, of the self-perpetuating flywheel that you get it going and you let it feed off of itself, right? That's a concept that I don't think anyone in, in the older generation of my family had, had ever considered. It was, what is the problem that I'm fixing at this moment? I fix this one. What is the next problem that I need to fix at this moment, right? So I think that coming in, going back to the previous question, one of the things that I learned growing up is that this business will suck the soul out of you, right? Because my father would leave the house at six o'clock in the morning because he had to go lift up the gate in his store. Yeah. And he would come home at nine o'clock at night because he had to close the gate yeah. on his door, right? So, so that was the mindset of of my uncles and my dad and my mom as as they were building the business back in the seventies and eighties, right? Um, my challenge was, am I going to do things the same way they did it, or am I going to find ways to be able to manage this business? in a more modern, more systematic, more processed way so that I can get, you know, I'm using flywheel again. I didn't know what a flywheel was in 2009, but get that type of, 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 of process going that I don't need to uh, open and close. I don't have to take off the alarm and then put it on at 11 p.m. when everyone leaves the store, right? So that was probably, and that's still a challenge. Right. But th we've gotten better at it as we go. But I think that's been the that was the biggest uh, obstacle that I had to overcome when I first started running the stores on my own. So that concept is probably a great transition for us to talk a little bit about the EOS uh, uh, system. Right. So BGW CPA uses it. We use it with BGW Wealth. And I know you do as well. Yeah. Um, so first, how, how did you discover or come across uh, the EOS system? Um, well, I, I learned about it through Vistage, right? So I don't know if you guys have talked about Vistage here on, 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 on the uh, podcast before, yeah. but um, I think it's very important if you're running a business to understand that you don't know everything, hmm. right? And I think that sometimes... You know, if you're a founder, especially, you might think, well, this is my baby and I know everything about it and nobody's going to tell me how to run my business and nobody can do it better than me. Right. And that's just not true. <laughs> and you could be Elon Musk or you can, you know, have a shop on the corner. And it's just not true. Um, and, and, and again, as part of this search, 
of how do I systemize and create processes and everything else, I learned about, I was invited to join the Vistage meeting. And as soon as they started talking, I said, I need to be a part of this, right? Because I have the business and industry knowledge from growing up and, and knowing about supermarkets. I don't feel I have the executive and management knowledge, right? Because that, I didn't learn any of that. I learned, I learned what products I need to buy from which vendors and put them where in the store at what pricing, <laughs> right? To be able to, to, to get people to buy. Yeah. But I never learned actual management and, and executive skills. So when, when, you know, I was talking to uh, who's now the chair of the group that I'm in and he explained the concept to me, I was like, take my money. I'm in, you sold me, right? <laughs> this, this is an opportunity for me to learn, to fill in the gaps of, 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 of what I think I need. So through there, he began discussing some of the different EOS concepts and, and I bought traction and I read traction. And, you know, when I read traction, I was like, this is it. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I worked together with, uh, with an implementer uh, to, uh, is that the, or any, what's the, what's the, yeah, that's that right. the phrase, yeah, that's the implementer? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, when we did, we did the VTO, we did the values and it really, helped to get a lot of things out of my brain and into the organization, right? Because what we, what we found out through that process was that I know what the core values of the company should be, but I had never communicated that to anybody else, <laughs> right? And I didn't even know there were core values, yep. okay? So as, as we went through that process, and we just put things to paper and we had our, you know, our executive team there of six, seven people and we're talking about it. And, and I realized it's like, yeah, good. This is the way that I can systemize the knowledge that we all have. Right. And we've kept all of that going through the level tens and, and the, uh, and the five, five, fives, you know, employee, you don't call it a review, but you know, the employee analysis, um, yeah. and, and, and so on, uh, understanding the, the importance of roles and, you know, right person in the right seat, all of, all of these types of, of, uh, concepts are things that I had never thought about them in an academic way. Right. I might have thought about it in an intuitive way. It's like, oh yeah, that guy's just not right for that position, mm. but I didn't know why I just felt like I just felt it. Right. But you know, going back and, and again, studying it in a more academic way and, and creating systems and processes out of it, really, really, that, I think that was really an accelerating factor in our success, right? That really took our business to a different level in terms of the way that we operated. How long have you been operating using those tools and principles? I th we started in 2017, so we are on year five. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. So just another observation. This is why I think we love working with you. You know, if anybody's listening to this, it's clear Omar is very smart. <laughs> he has a lot of firepower, you know, between his ears. Um, but the other thing that, but there are plenty of very smart people and intelligent people, but that aren't always teachable. And that, that's a huge thing. You know, you said you surrounded yourself with 
you, you signed up with Vistage, which was, hey, one of the blessings of mastermind groups like Vistage, C12, there are a number of really good groups out there, is, hey, I admit, I don't know it all, and I actually want to learn from other people and help short circuit, you know, the learning time, right? Because that's really what happens. You, you, you elongate it when you sit and think that you're the smartest person that you got it all figured out, even though you know you don't. So I think that's one thing. Um, but I'm also curious about, um, you know, when, when you went down that path, it was a pretty immediate thing. How did you find out about it? You know, like they don't advertise a lot of this stuff, you know? Um, so how, how did you find out about it? Um, well, I was invited to a meeting and I thought it was going to be Amway or some type of multi-level marketing scheme. Oh. <laughs> right. And, uh, I was, I was invited by my banker. Right. And I'm going to reserve his name. Um, but when he invited me, I, I swear, I thought to myself, I have to go to this because it's my banker. And when I'm going to need a loan, if I don't go to this, he's going to hold it against me. And then, you know, it's going to be a problem. So fine, I'll go listen to this multi-level marketing pitch. And then I'm going to go home and say, oh, thanks. I appreciate it. It's not really for me. And, and at least, you know, I did him the favor of going to this, to this, to this meeting, right? And, uh, and, and that's what it was. It was, it was the Vistage presentation and it wasn't a multi-level marketing scheme. Um, it was something that really changed the way that, that I run my business. So I'm still grateful for him. I still talk to him all the time. Um, but, uh, but it, it really was one of those meetings that opened your eyes that it, it, it was a strange combination of this is what I'm searching for. And I'm sitting in a room where they're telling me here it is. You know, yeah. So that that felt that felt really really good. One other thing that I wanted to dovetail into that was, you know, you said that, you know, by growing up in the business and with family members and that sort of thing, you you learned about what to buy, how to position it in the store so people bought it, right? Which yeah. that has its own art and skill, which Absolutely. is very very important. But uh, you didn't have some of these other things that were transferred because that wasn't part of what your, your parents and, and, you know, uncles and aunts, whatever, had gone through as well. So you had to pioneer this new area. I'm just curious. And you said that your, your dad checks in on you, you know, once or twice a year, which is really interesting because not every family business is able to have that kind of trust yep. and delegation. You know, some of them are just like micromanagement, you know, and just yeah. wears them out. Talk to us a little bit about that dynamic um, and how that was and how it's transitioned. You know, I, I'd be curious about that part of the Yeah. Dynamic. So I think that at the beginning, I would call him all the time. Right. Um, in 2009, I would I would I would I was actually, you know, he wouldn't come down to Charlotte. He would stay in New York. But, you know, I would call him for looking back on it, relatively minor things, right? And uh, one day, like 2010, 2011, he, he just said to me, what would you do if you didn't call me? 
And I said, well, I think that I would probably do X, Y, and Z. And he said, so, so do X, Y, and Z. And, 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 and I took that two ways, right? The first way was, uh, oh, he, I'm bothering him, right? I, he, doesn't, he just doesn't want me to bother him anymore. And then the second thing was, oh, he trusts me. And that was kind of an eye-opener. It's like he actually trusts that I'm going to make the right decision, right? And, and that, that really was a shift in, in the relationship. When I realized that, uh, that he actually trusted that my decision-making and the way that I was handling things, that really freed me up a significant amount. Um, and, you know, one, one time I would complain all the time, like, you guys don't come to Charlotte enough, like just to, just to forget about the supermarkets, just come visit us in Charlotte, come spend a week in my house with my kids. And, you know, I go to New, we go to New York a lot, right? So they see the kids all the time and they spend a lot of time with the kids. But, you know, I was like, why don't you guys come to Charlotte? Why do I always have to come to New York and you guys don't come down? And, um, and, and one time I said, you know, you should at least come and see the stores. And he said, look, I know you're doing a good job with the stores. I don't need to go to the stores. Okay. I, I, you've got it under control. I, I, I see what's going on. I am, I'm, I am keeping tabs on you, even though you don't realize it. And you're doing, you're doing fine. All right. And then in 2016, he basically said to me, you know, I just want to play golf. I don't even want to think about supermarkets anymore. And, uh, and we worked out a, a buyout agreement where I purchased uh, the stores. At that point, we, had, we went from one store to two stores. So I purchased the two stores here in Charlotte from him. And, uh, and after that, it's basically, we only talk about golf and grandkids. We really don't even talk about supermarkets all that much anymore since 2016. Um, in 2018, one of my uncles, who was also here in Charlotte, I have a big family. Uh, so when I say uncles and cousins and everything else, they're, they're all different people. Um, <laughs> but uh, I have an uncle in, in 2018 that called me up and said, hey, look, I just want to go back to the Dominican Republic. And I'm, I'm just kind of done. Right. So I'll sell you the stores and you can you know, keep running them. And, you know, we'll work out a way that you can pay me back and we'll do that. So then I ended up buying his two stores. So that's that's how I went from one to four, and now today I own four supermarkets here in Charlotte, out of the seven Compare Foods that we have here. So let's keep going down that as far as the structure of it all, and I want us to go into Aurora Grocery Group uh, a little bit. So yeah, describe what Aurora is, and then we'll go from there. So Aurora in 2011, I you know I'd been in the store for two years now. I had a pretty good handle on how to run the supermarket. I had begun this process of systemizing and processes and, and, and everything else. And I realized, you know, we operate as a family. And when I say family, I've got, on my mom's side of the family, they're 15. So I've got 14 aunts and uncles, right? And, and all of them are in the supermarket business. And then when you go down to cousins, I've got about, at last count, I think about 80 cousins, okay? And um, I'm not, all of them, not all of my cousins are in the supermarket business, but enough of them are, right? 
we had at that point 24 supermarkets all independently owned and all running as a separate entity yeah right so my store that was at 818 east arrowwood road was buying at completely different prices than my aunt was at 3112 milton road even though we're both in charlotte right because we were negotiating separately with these vendors they were giving us different terms it was like you're negotiating with two completely different which you are you're negotiating with two completely different entities because my aunt owns her store on milton and i owned my store on arrowwood right so i got i I put together a family meeting in 2011 and i said this is crazy right like we can't we've been in this business for too long we've grown too fast there's no reason that we should not be taking advantage of the economies of scale that we have as a group, right? Um, and I remember one of the first projects that we took on was credit card processing or merchant processing, right? Um, and just to give you an example, I had negotiated a deal where I was paying a penny and a half and my cousin in Statesville was paying eight cents. So he was paying eight times more per transaction than I was. And we're 20 miles away, right? And the only reason that was happening was because we didn't have the communication with each other or the trust with each other to say, here's my merchant processing statement, right? Well, here's mine. Well, when we got all 24 of them together and we went to First Data and said, hey, this is the volume that we're talking about. Guess what? No one in my family is paying eight cents anymore, right? Everyone in my family now is paying one point five is paying a penny and a half plus interchange fees. And anytime any other company comes to try and take that business away, they can't match the rate. And the only reason we we're able to do that was because of the uh the ability to work together and leverage those those economies of scale. When we talk to our primary wholesaler, right, it's not twenty-four separate stores anymore. Now we're talking about this massive volume that we're bringing to your warehouse, right? What are we getting for that? Well, we tripled the benefits that we were getting from our wholesale vendors because we did that, right? And in New York, like I said before, there was some issues with the trademark, um, which your show is not long enough for us to go into. Um, <laughs> but we ended up launching a new, a new brand in uh in the northeast so our stores in new york connecticut massachusetts and new jersey are now gala foods and gala fresh right and there was a lot of fear in my family because we had been compare food since 1989 all of us right so they were saying well we've had this name for so long we're going to lose all of our customers right well no you're not because aurora did this the right way we put together a marketing package for the transition so that the customers are going to understand that nothing is changing other than the sign in the front of the store and the sales are hot. Well, they're higher than ever because of COVID and the, you know, changes in the market, but they didn't lose any sales at all when we made the change. Right. And we had our board, not our board meeting. We had our general assembly meeting about two weeks ago and all of the ones that have changed from compared to gala would never go back. They say we're, we're proud that this is our trademark as a group. It's been very successful. We're coming out with private label products. We're doing a lot of things 
that one individual store cannot do, but 25 stores as a group can. Um, one of the, the specific differences here compared to what people see a lot of times is Aurora is not a holding company, right? Aurora is there to maximize the, the economies of scale for all of these individual entities. So with that dynamic and so many different leaders, so many different owners that are all being serviced by Aurora, how does that leadership dynamic work, whether it's the communication or decision-making or anything like that inside of Aurora? Yeah, add the family aspect too, right, as a complicating yeah. factor, yeah. right? Because it would be hard enough to do that if you're not family, yeah. but add, add that then you have to have Thanksgiving yeah, company, you have to have, a large family. You were you were not exaggerating about having a, a large family either. Yeah, it's <laughs> a big family. So so add to that that then you have to go and have Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners with all of these with all of these people around you, and that's an additional complicating factor. Yeah. Um, we we have very strong bylaws, right? And and we worked those out in 2012 and 2011 when we started. And we said, look, this is a business, right? And we're not looking at this as 24 individual businesses. We're looking at this as the vehicle for transition within the family from generation to generation, right? We're looking at this as the way that we're going to have multi-generational longevity with our business, right? Um, so that type of mind frame is stating the, the the purpose and the goals right up front is very helpful to getting everyone on board right and i'm not going to say that everything that aurora does is is a smashing success because that's not true right sometimes we come up with an initiative and when we take it to the stores the stores say we're that's crazy we're not participating in that okay and then we have to go back and and reflect as a board we have, a, we have a board that's voted on by family members, and that board is the one that makes the decisions, right? So we have to go back and say, well, wait a second, why are 17 of the 25 stores saying that they don't want to participate in this? We messed up somewhere. Now we've got a course correct, right? Yeah. Maybe this is something that we should just leave to the individual stores because it's very, it's very specific in how it's managed in that location, right? Um, and we have to be respectful of that. So I, I think as long as the communication is open um, and everyone is clear on what the purpose of the organization is and that the intent is always to maximize the profitability and the success of the individual store, right? So that, that's another, an, another value that's very important. There have been times where we have been proposed things that would be good for Aurora as a company but not for the individual stores, and we will automatically turn those down. We won't even think about those, right? Because the philosophy is the stores come first, and then if Aurora can support the stores, then it will take it up and do it. So I want to go back to something that you had mentioned earlier, where you were basically talking about having to balance going into COVID, right? One, one prevailing thought, shut everything down, keep, you know, everybody safe. Cause we didn't know, like, is this Ebola? We did, I mean, we didn't know, right? right? Yeah. So 
that's one extreme. The other extreme is no, we're, you know, we, we can't uh, avoid and not take care of our community that's depending on food and all that kind of stuff. So good luck with that, you know, employees. How did you like, let's talk about some of the dynamics that happened with, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of look back on with hindsight now even though we, we're not necessarily completely out of it. I don't know if the, that we ever will be, but you know, it's not like it was on March the 13th of 2020. Yeah. Um, what were some of those things that, that you did and had to readjust and how did you balance that? What, what, what were some of the things that you did? Well, I think that very quickly, we knew we were not closing. Right. And um, it doesn't matter what's happening in the world. People have to eat. Right. Right. And no one's going back to doing their own farming anytime soon. You know, um, I think, you know, maybe more people had gardens during the pandemic than they had before. But I don't think a garden is feeding your entire family all the time. Right. So. And, and second of all, the locations where our stores are are some of the most economically disadvantaged parts of our city right so th this isn't uh an earth fair or a fresh market that's closing down where you have six harris teeters and three publixes around the corner right i mean these are these are parts of the city where if we close down there may not be another food option for a couple of miles around right right um so the first commitment was we had to stay open because now more than ever this community is going to depend on us the second point was if we're going to have to stay open we need to protect our employees as much as possible right and i had my employees wearing masks and gloves before there was even a mask mandate we had we had employees not employees we had customers coming into the store and mocking our employees because they were wearing masks right because oh you guys are you guys are overreacting and da, 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 da. okay maybe we might be right um and 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 this isn't 2020 hindsight because i did a lot of interviews in 2020 talking about what we did uh, in a lot of the industry events, um, I took it upon myself to learn as much about this disease as I could in those early days with the goal of coming up with strategies to keep my employees safe, right? So the plexiglass dividers, the distancing in, in, in the store, um, for a long period of time, we had a policy that we would only have one person per family come in the store. Culturally, for the Hispanic community, shopping in the supermarket is a family event. So we would have one shopping cart before COVID, I mean, actually now again, but definitely before COVID, you would have one shopping cart and it would be mom, dad, the two kids and grandma. So we would have five people walking around the store filling up one shopping cart for one family. Right. So we, we made it. We, we would love to have all five of you, but this is not the time. Right. So one person per family come in and do the shopping. 
so uh, and a lot of that was based again on a, a lot of research that I was doing, not just domestically, but I was looking at a lot of the health journals internationally, right? What is Britain doing about this? What is France saying about this? What is Germany saying about this? What is Japan doing about this, right? South Korea was a big leader in minimizing the effect of COVID. What is, why is South Korea being so successful at limiting the effects of this disease when the United States is not? Right. And what can I take from that experience and apply it directly in the supermarket? Right. Um, sanitizing everything down twice a day. Right. We were, we were sanitizing twice a day in the cashiers between customers. We're wiping everything down uh, with, with Clorox wipes. Obviously, we had the supply chain issues where, for some reason, everybody decided that toilet paper was the most important thing needed to survive. Um, <laughs> which was kind of crazy, but figuring out, we know we're not getting toilet paper in the United States, right? Which one, which of our suppliers that are coming from Mexico or Costa Rica or Ecuador are gonna be able to ship us a container of toilet paper? So we were probably the first supermarket in Charlotte to be able to restock bleach because we were able to get it internationally and bring it and bring it into the city because of the variety of vendors that we have. So, so there was definitely a lot of lessons and a lot of adaptation that was necessary during that time for us to, uh, to get through it. Um, and, and the one thing that I told all of my team at the end of 2020 was how incredibly proud I was of them because, you know, we're, we're talking about me, but it's not me. It's 400 other people that are going to work every day when they're scared out of their mind because they don't know if this is the day that they're going to get sick, yep. right? And, and, and all I could do was try to give them the best environment possible so that they could at least feel safe while they're serving the community. And they really pulled through. They did a fantastic job. So one of the th things that came up a couple of times as you were talking there was you were making decisions and doing things that was not traditional or typical for your customer. So how did you handle the customer client interaction of a family walks up to your store and you say, I'm sorry, only one of you can come in or oh, I'm sorry, you have to wait while we wipe this down. How did that interaction happen? It was difficult. It was difficult. People do not like their patterns changed. Right. And they don't like to be inconvenienced in any way. And that, again, that was part of the training. It was, this is how you de-escalate a situation, right? If you see that it's becoming a little bit, you know, if the heat's coming up a little bit in the interaction, call over a manager and let them handle it, right? You've got people here that are supporting you as an employee inside the store, but it, it really was more training. It was, look, you have to explain to the customer, none of us have been through this before. Mm -hmm. Let's have a little bit of grace with each other. All right, let's have a little bit of patience with each other. Yeah. Understand that this isn't just to keep our employees safe. This is to keep you all safe yeah. from each other as well, right? It's very difficult to, to socially distance in a supermarket, right? Even when the social distancing rules were there, people weren't following them. 
Yeah. And there's not at that point there's not much we can do. We're not gonna we're not gonna referee people in the aisle and say no you two are too close to each other. <laughs> we can't we're not gonna do we're, we never went that far, right? But but at least you know the mask issue, man. When when the mandate came in, it was I think we had we had customers coming in without the mask on purpose, looking to create a conflict with employees. Like that was their goal was to. To, to create conflict, right? Um, and and uh, just teaching the employees de-escalation tactics. This is how you discuss the reasons that we're doing this. It's not personal. We don't, you know, it's not because we don't like you. It's not because of this reason or that reason. It's because this is the first time any of us have been in a pandemic like this. Back then, there was no vaccine. There was, you know, we're all learning as we go. And uh, let's just try to have a little bit of patience with each other, right? And we we had customers that would leave the store very upset, you know. But we're trying to keep everybody safe. I'm not going to apologize for that. Right. Yeah, that's unbelievable. So this has been a tremendous conversation. I very easily could keep peppering you with questions for for a couple (laughs) more hours. Um, But... We'll, we'll at least put a pin in it for now. Gary, do you have any other final thoughts before I wrap up? No, man, it's, uh, this has been a lot of fun, Omar, because I've learned a lot more since uh, we first met a couple of years ago now. But um, this has been really helpful um, and insightful. So thank you for taking time away from everything else you got going on. Yeah. No, I, appreciate, I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for the invitation. And uh, I was happy to uh, to have the conversation with you guys. Thank you. Well, good. So where where can we send people, Omar? Where where can people connect? Or if they have a question or a thought after this, where would you like them connecting with you? Sure. Well, my email is ojorge at compareclt.com. Um, that's probably the best way to reach me. Um, as Gary probably knows, my cell phone is probably the worst way to reach me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm very happy to take emails. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, feel free to uh, to reach out if you have any questions. I'm in the stores all the time. I can't tell you which store I'm going to be in at which time, but if you happen to go into a store and you know and, and you see me walking around, feel free to stop and say hi. Lots of people do, and I love it every time they do. I love having conversations with uh, with our customers about what we could be doing better and 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 what they like about what we're doing now. So uh, feel free to pull me in one of the aisles and just. Uh, ask me questions about supermarkets. <laughs> okay, perfect. Thanks so, so much, Omar. One other thing that I just yeah. have to jump in on that. The best leaders I've served under, including Hugh McCall, who largely built the skyline here in Charlotte, they walk among the troops. They are not living in some ivory tower or on a beautiful beach and phoning it in. They are walking among the troops, which I admire, um, and I and I don't think that there's really any substitute for that, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Gary. My my wife jokes that uh, after three days on vacation, I start getting anxiety and I have to go visit a supermarket, even if it's not mine, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it's uh, it's it's almost a psychological thing at this point that if I'm not hearing the beeps of the cash registers. And I'm not seeing the items on the shelves. I don't feel at home anymore, right? 
So uh, <laughs> she tells me, I, you have three days of vacation, and then you have to go. It doesn't matter what supermarket it is. Wherever we are, I have to go into a supermarket just to get the, you know, the, the dopamine hit or whatever it is that I need to uh, to get me going again. <laughs> oh man! Well then, yeah, we'll definitely people will definitely be able to run into you at your stores then. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much, Omar.